Caro, and welcome to episode 107 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. We've reached part two of our conversation with rock producer Ed Stasium, which means it's time to hear about his work on the new replacements Tim Box, as well as with the Ramones, Talking Heads, and the Smithereens. As a bonus, you get Stasium telling stories of being held prisoner in Phil Spector's house and having his life saved thanks to a drunk drummer. Stasium is currently riding a wave of widespread appreciation for his remix of The Replacements' 1985 album, Tim, as featured in Rhino Records' new Let It Bleed edition box set. Tim, the band's major label debut, originally produced by the late Tommy Erdely of the Ramones, was notoriously thin-sounding, but not anymore. Thanks to Stasium's work, Tim sounds more alive than ever. Did Stasium use the original album as a reference point here, or just mix the tapes the way he thought they should be mixed? Did he go through a lot of alternate takes to pull out performances not heard on the first Tim, such as Bob Stinson guitar tracks? Was Stasium getting feedback from any replacements during this process? Has Paul Westerberg sent him a note of appreciation or anything else about the new mix? Stasium first met Tim producer Tommy Early, aka drummer Tommy Ramone, when Stasium was engineering, mixing, and playing on the Ramones albums Leave Home through Road to Ruin, the last of which he co-produced with Tommy. Stasium and Erdely returned to produce 1984's Too Tough to Die, and in between, Stasium played on the Phil Spector-produced End of the Century. How did he wind up on that project, and what the hell was going on there? Stasium also engineered the album Talking Head 77 and shares his impressions of that band. And in the late 80s, he connected with the New Jersey power pop band The Smithereens, producing their third and fourth albums, Eleven and Blow Up. Smithereens drummer Dennis Dykin said recently on Carol Pop that he didn't like Stasium's insistence that he play with a click track. Stasium makes the case for click tracks in this conversation. He also says what happened when Madonna was supposed to play on a Smithereens song, and the Bee Gees and Geraldo Rivera somehow appear in his other colorful stories. But can Stasium explain his instinct for making music sound so good? You'll learn and laugh a lot in this action-packed Carol Pop conversation with Ed Stasium. The Tim Let It Bleed edition, everyone loves it. Everyone's like, oh my God, I'm hearing this great album for the first time. I had no idea there was going to be such an amazing response to it. No idea. Neither did the, you know, um, Bob Meir, who I worked with Bob Meir and Jason Jones. Bob, the bio, um, replacement biographer, he wrote Absolutely. the book. Absolutely. And, you know, extremely intelligent, huge music fan, cat. Um, and so I worked with Bob and Jason Jones from Rhino on the project. And, you know, also Susan, Susan, Suzanne Savage, uh, who hooked the whole thing up, um, you know, as a, she heads up the A&R department. But none of us had any idea that it would be such a positive, overwhelming response. It's crazy. And still, you know, I get stuff in my inbox every day. I'm getting emails and mostly emails from people I've never heard of telling me that they've, this has changed their lives. And, you know, I'm a grown man and I'm crying over this kind of stuff. Uh, Pretty bizarre, Um, but it's great. You know, what the heck? Um, Like, you know, everybody seems to love it. Yeah. I mean, you're always going to have your don't mess with history. Don't change anything sort of people. There's not that that many of them. No, that it's it's really overwhelmed by, Oh, this album never sounded good. And now it finally sounds great. And yeah. we love this album, and it's great to hear what they yeah. probably wanted it to sound like in the first place. Yeah, I saw a poll yesterday from a, a Minneapolis public radio station or something, and it was like 90% were positive. But, you know, they hey, they have a choice. We have a remastered version of the original. Right. Uh, the best remastered version, I must say, um, in the box. And people can listen to that if they like. Right. And the people, box has the, the vinyl of the your your mix. Yes. And then CDs of your mix, the a remaster of the original mix, and right. then a live show in good old Chicago that pretty much yeah. kicks yeah. butt too. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, lots of extra stuff, you know, all the all the Chilton um recording sessions at different stages and right. You know, I mean, in total, I mixed, I think there's like 24, 20, maybe 26 songs that I revamped um, and pulled out, you know, in, in addition to, you know, including the 11 songs on the record. I think there were 11 songs on the record, which they, they only put that on vinyl, but on the, there's an extra disc as well that has a lot of extra stuff. 
including different versions and on and on and on. So Tommy Erdely is the he produced the original version of Tim and also was the drummer for the Ramones and produced Ramones albums that you worked on. So was your connection with him through the Ramones what got you onto this project? Yeah. I, in the long run, I suppose so. I mean, there's mention in Bob's book. Somebody brought this to my attention years ago um, in the Trouble Boys book that uh, about a week into the session that uh, uh, Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stinson kind of pulled each other aside and said, hey, I'm not liking the way this is sounding. I think we should have gotten Stasium. So here we are 45 years later, however much it is, uh, ended up, you know, mixing it. And they people are saying, and people, there's mention of me being um, possibly involved with the original record, but I don't remember ever being approached about it. Maybe it, I was, but, you know, I was really busy and, it, you know, it's a long time ago and I've done a lot of projects. So there, there was talk about Tommy and I producing the record, apparently. I don't remember if they even approached me or I got a call from Seymour. I don't remember. Because you guys had been a team up to that point. <clears throat> yeah, we basically, you know, even the records that um, um, Tommy and, and Bon Jovi produced, got credit, you know, Bon Jovi was never there. It was Tommy and I who made those records, you know, Leave Home, Rocket to Russia, uh, those two in particular, you know, with Tony um, getting the production credit, but Tony was never there. It was Tommy and I who made those records. Right. You know, and um, then we co-produced uh, Road to Rune together and uh, it's alive and too tough to die. So, you know, Tommy, um, he had my back when I was doing this because actually, you know, there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great stuff on the, um, on the tapes that you know wasn't on the uh, original mix that we pulled out you know a lot of bob's guitar work and right but i had to like i said i had tommy had my back the entire time because I, I still hear his voice i have um this retention thing i could hear everybody's voice i i don't know if everybody could do that but you know if i want to hear johnny talking to me i hear johnny talking to me or dd or tommy i hear their voice and hear that, feel their presence always Right. I mean, none of them are around, which is sad no, and crazy. So no, it's, it's they're they're all gone. When you approached for Tim, was it sort of set up like, look, we want you to do this kind of reclamation project because we think the sound of it was never great, or was it more just like, hey, we're just we're doing our version of Tim, and here's the tapes, and oh, do what you can. But guess what? Yeah, it's um, actually dramatic. You know, they, they sent they sent me a dossier, and you know, I was approached to do this. Suzanne Savage at Rhino originally told me about the project that Bob and Jason wanted me to do it, and um, their dossier. The first, the first line is the LP and CD one will feature a new mix of the original album by Ed Stasium. I mean, they wanted me to do it, and um, they were very helpful. And they reviewed all of the tapes. They found all the tapes. They found all of the Chilton demo demos. They, but you know, the sessions, and they they were very well aware of all the different stuff that was on the uh, multi tracks. And they had studied, Jason especially, you know, studied those track sheets and said, there's lots of, there's vocal takes and, you know, three tracks of vocals on this song. There's four tracks of Bob's guitar. And, you know, we want to find out if we can use them or if they were used. And so I, I was a quest. I mean, I spent, I spent a good two and a half months on the project. Did you know that album pretty well when you went into it? I did not. You know, I had uh, probably breezed through it at one point. Um, let me say that, um, you know, I'm the kind of guy that when I'm working, I, I just pretty much pay attention to what I'm working on um, for years. I mean, at that time, you know, I was living in Manhattan and I would be working on projects, um, whatever they may, may have been. And uh, and I was also going to England, you know, this is the Julian Cope days and a couple other bands that I worked with in the UK. And you know what I did? I was in the studio that day and then I went and I brought, got a cassette deck. It was before DATS and after reel to reel. You didn't carry a reel to reel around with you, but you would carry a, I, I had a Sony Pro Walkman and a pair of speakers, you know, right. these Iowa speakers, I think. And I had some Bose speakers for a while that I carried around, but they suck. I would listen to this, what I did during the day. And when I wake up in the morning, I'd be in the shower, I'd bring the cassette deck in there and I'd, I'd listen um, with the speakers and listen to what we did the day before and get come up with ideas so listening to a lot of 
outside material at that point that I wasn't that wasn't presented to me as a work project was kind of non heard of because I've always paid attention when I was, you know, in the car when I moved to LA. What did I do? Work, you record all day, get a cassette, put it in the car on the drive home, you listen to it. Right. Bring it home, listen to it at home. And then wake up, drive back to the studio and listen to it again. I'd be just listening to the project I'd be working on multiple songs or whatever song was coming up or the mix when I would mix something as I do now, you know, I'm working on a project now. I'll, I finished it up last night, send it to the client and, you know, they make a couple notes and, you know, I always refresh in the morning and, and re- review the mix. Um, it's a little easier now because I just have to roll out of bed and uh, I don't have to drive anywhere to or take a cab or subway to go to the studio to work on anything. So when you got this gig, did you then pull out Tim or like get a copy of Tim and listen to it sort of critically and think? No, no, approached it fresh. Um, you know, I, I, they gave me the multi-tracks and I, I dove into it. So you dove into it like you were just in a recording studio, someone giving you multi-tracks. You didn't listen to the other version of it and hear. Well, I did what... listen to the other version. What I, what I did was, and I had to because, um, so I would, I, it would import the uh, original production mix into my Pro Tools session. All, it's, all the, um, uh, the multi-tracks were transferred to Pro, into Pro Tools sessions for me. Um, which is really easy because sometimes they just give send me wave files and it's a pain in the ass and to label everything, put things in order. But this was nicely done. Uh, uh, Rhino and Warner Brothers, etc. They always send me high resolution, you know, Pro Tool sessions, which are, are great, just great to work with. And it's all ready for me there. I have the track sheets I can look up. What I would do, I always they always send me the um, actual production mix masters as well uh, 16-bit 44-1 files import them into my session and then i have to time stretch the multi-track to match the original because as you know it was all done on tape and you have that differential you have you know tapes that stuff doesn't hold like digital does i mean it, it varies you know it could vary by uh, honestly a few seconds some of the projects i worked on vary within a song there was a bad company atmos mix that i did that i had to actually hire a guy to come in and help me with you know time stretching the master tape because it didn't match it would match for like 20 seconds and it would drift off uh-huh. and it would match another 20 seconds then 30 seconds and it would drift off so we had to like cut it and match it in sections so it was exactly the same um, as the um, the production mix, the original production mix. Apple and Adobe are very particular about having it exact, exactly the same length as the original, you know, to put up on the on the streaming sites. Now, with the replacements, I didn't have to do that because um, we want these are fresh mixes, so we did not match the original um, lengths. But I had to match the original length to see what vocals they used and what guitars they used. Drums and rhythm tracks are pretty much all there, but they did um, multiple takes of vocals and multiple takes of Bob Simpson on guitar. And I needed to find out we wanted to use the we wanted to use the actual vocals that they used on the on that on Tommy's mix. So I ha- would have to go through each song individually. And I would say that, you know, I think 80% of the tracks, the uh, songs, um, had multi multiple tracks of multiple takes of vocals. So I had to discover what takes they used. They didn't use, you know, when I make a comp and even on tape back in the day, I would always do how many tracks, four or five tracks, right? And um, I would always like bounce that to another track, an open track. I would take that, those vocal takes and like, you know, go through them, listen to each track and then bounce that to another track. Say, say the vocals were on, you know, tracks 30, 40, 15, 16. And then I would bounce all those tracks to like track 18. Okay, and sometimes I would get rid of those tracks. Sometimes I keep them. Well, with Tim and what they did uh, in the original mixing is they used a a computer. Uh, Must have been an early computer because there were like two tracks of Simpty, uh, tracks one and track 24. So they would, they bounced and used the computer to mute and change the tracks. So I had to figure out what vocal takes they use. So what I would do is take the original 
production master, put it on the left side, then isolate Paul's vocals on the right side. And so we had a time stretch to match the whole track first. And then I would listen and you could tell when the vocal came up in the middle of the speakers that that was the vocal they used. But sometimes it would be like, oh, there's a part that they didn't use. So I had to match all those up. That was very time consuming. Huh. Same with Bob's same with Bob's guitar. Same type of thing. Took a long time. Were you adding more guitar parts than were on the original? On the original mix? Yeah. I didn't, I did, I, I didn't add any guitar parts. We used... Um, no, but I'm saying that like there, there are Bob guitar parts on this mix, the Let It Be yeah. Ed Stacey mix, that were not on the album that came out in 80. That is correct. And we wanted to do... Uh, the our, our team, um, you know, Bob Meir and Jason Jones and myself, we, they especially wanted to pull some new stuff out of there that Bob had played that wasn't used. Uh, especially, you can hear it on a little mascara. There's a little line on it. There's a little mascara. Da, 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 da. There's this guitar line that Bob played that was like, why didn't they use that? It's great. It's a hook. So we, we found a bunch of Bob stuff, little things and big things that were, were not used. Were there times where you found a vocal take or a, you know a lead guitar part where you thought, Oh, this is better than what's on the record, but I need to stick with what's on the record to make it more. No, we wanted to. We wanted to stick what was on the record, although there are uh, alternative takes uh, on a couple of the songs. I don't recall which ones actually right now, but uh, they're in the extras on the extras disc, different vocal takes, different version um, with with the track being the same. But there's a different vocal on a couple of songs that we just because it was fun, you know, pull it out and it was one whole first take, something like that. I mean, what yeah. did you think of the choices that Tommy had made in doing? The I think you know things? they well, uh, n- n- not necessarily the choices, but uh, I thought that what they re- got on tape was great. The sounds were really good. Um, I had no complaints about that. The drums sounded great. The vocal, you know, everything was recorded really well. And you know, there was always speculation that you know the band's amps weren't any good, and but they uh, they recorded them great. And you know, there was a like with uh, Westerberg's um, guitars, they had two amps, one dirty Marshall and another one, a Sun amp that was super clean. So I was able to use a combination of, of two of those. And it's not a double track. It's like the same guitar part, but played through two different amplifiers. Um, you know, so Tommy did a great job of getting the sounds down and producing the record and getting the performances. That's for sure. Now, the mix is another story. Um, you know, apparently nobody liked the mix except those, you know, the 10... I would say nine, 2% that really are adamant about the original mix. But what, so what happened with the mix? Why did the mix go south when the, what they had on tape was so good? I don't know. That wasn't there. <laughs> Tommy is not really a mixer. You know, um, all those Ramones records, you know, Tommy was with me, but I would get all the sounds and, you know, get the balances and get everything going. And Tommy would, he would put on his headphones, his cost headphones, and he would always ride the vocal during the mix. But that's all he would do. Maybe a guitar once in a while, but I was kind of in charge of all getting the sounds and getting those mixes going. So with Tim, I, uh, who knows? I don't know. I, I never talked to Tommy about it. Got me. But there's just something a little bit sort of flat, like kind of a narrow sound stage. Like people talk about how they think it almost sounds like a mono record and yours. Is yeah, it does. It's, there's, no, there's no stereo separation. There's a lot of reverb. I mean, I didn't dwell on the original mix. Um, when I did dwell on the original mix, it was finding what vocals they used and which Bob's guitar they used. Um, but And I would A, B to make sure, you know, we were in a vibe. You know, I lined it up and I could just switch between the original and, and the new mix. Um, yeah, on, on my little console. I mean, I think that you're known a lot for getting kind of a muscular sound. And we could talk about that with, you know, the Smithereens and other bands, but even something like, you know, Swing and Party has just this kind of depth and smoothness to it that it doesn't have yeah. before. Is, is, is it just, again, just a matter of getting, doing better mixes? Is there something it's a about matter, It's a matter of taste. It's not, not better or it's different. It is better though. Not necessarily. Well, good. I'm glad people think it's better. Um, I just do what I do. I don't analyze anything. I just turn the knobs till it sounds good. That's what I've always done. Was so, there anything about it that surprised you, whether it was like, you know, Paul's guitar playing versus Bob's guitar playing or anything else? When you sort of pulled everything else, you're like, oh, I sort of didn't expect that. Paul's rhythm guitar is most excellent. He's a, he's a great player and his time is impeccable. There's a couple of tunes. Can't hardly wait. Um, you know, there's a there's a, a, a version 
with a cello on the uh, on the new record on the, on the box set. Right. And uh, you know the the guitar, the acoustic guitar, and the vocal are done live. And then the cello is an overdub. Okay, but it's just Paul and singing with an acoustic guitar. It was nice. It was mic nicely. The two mics on the guitar and a nice vocal mic. And everything is well notated in the track sheets. Um, and then there were several tracks of cello, like three takes, I think. And, you know, um, to get the, they were kind of haphazard. Um, it was a, a, a woman who worked at the studio. I think she was the receptionist. She happened to mention, hey, I play cello. And Paul Westerberg brought her in and said, okay, let's try cello on this song. And they did uh, several takes and not, there was good parts. There were good parts of the cello, but there wasn't a consistent track that was good, that was well-performed and in tune. So I had to make a comp of all the different cello parts. And I noticed that there was no, they didn't use click track or anything. There's no grid. We're not in Pro Tools. There's no click track, nothing. But Paul's rhythm is incredibly consistent with his timing. I mean, let's just say it was, um, you know, 80 beats per minute, okay? And I have a little tic-tac thing that I use for uh, timing. I mean, there are pl there are apps that do it, but what I, I've been doing for years to get um, meter is go. That's my famous DB12 Dr. Beat. Mm. And um, so I would click that at the beginning of the song. And then at the end of the song, you know, in between, it was just consistent, like whatever it was. This came out, say it's 94 beats per minute. So I would take cello parts from the end of the song and fly them into the beginning of the song effortlessly because of Paul's consistent rhythm playing. Right. Yeah, and it's so cool to have those early versions of Can't Hardly Wait because that turned out to be one of the standout tracks on the next album, Please to Meet Me. It was the last yeah. song on that record in one of the uh -huh. singles. With um, the horns. Yeah, exactly. And and it's sort of weird that it didn't make the cut of Tim, except that you know they just didn't have it where they wanted it, I guess. Right. Yeah. And there's like I think there's four, three or four versions on this uh, box set. Yeah, from the children's session. Yeah. Right. We did that. Yeah. So was Paul Westerberg involved in this project and did you get much feedback from him? I didn't speak to him directly. Um, there was uh, Bob and Jason would speak to Tommy and uh, Bob, apparently. I just got um, extensive notes on the mixes, um, which were from Tommy and Bob, I assume, but I can't tell you. Um, you Bob Mirror. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. I would get, you know, I would get the notes from Jason and Bob, and I would assume that, you know, uh, Westerberg and Tommy Stinson contributed to some of these comments. And uh, Chris Marr is not in the picture on this? No. No, not at all. Not that I know of. Yeah. And honestly, I don't know if Westerberg and Stinson were actually getting feedback. Maybe. I never questioned it. So you haven't got like any sort of note from Paul afterwards no, saying, "Hey, nothing. this sounds great, no, man." No, nothing, nada. Do you usually? Or is it? Would Would you have expected to? Well, working with the uh, yeah, artists usually are always involved. Always. I don't think there's a well. This is a different kind of project, you know. I mean, it's a record that's what forty five years old, and yeah. you know the, the band sort of put it aside as you know, okay, whatever you guys want to do a remix, great, go do it. I mean, that's kind of the impression that I got about the band's vibe. Although there are, I think there are a couple um, interviews with Tommy that he does talk about the, the remix out there. Um, I can't give you any details about it, but if maybe if you do a little search, you can, you can find them yourself. All right. Do you like the album now? When you're working on an album like this, do you, do you sort of assess how much you like it or is it just like it's your work and this, you're going to make it sound as good as it can yeah, and where, where it sort it of stands in the pantheon well, like, of albums is not like, something you're thinking about? Like I always say, I just, you know, I, I enjoyed, tremendously enjoyed working on the project. It was challenging and gratifying and I'm grateful that they asked me to do it. Um, but like I've said a million times, I just turn those knobbies until I think it sounds good to me. And that seems to work. 
Are you looking for a non-alcoholic alternative to beer? Revolution Brewing is now offering Super Zero, a sparkling hop water that delivers the citrusy hop flavor you'd expect from the makers of the best-selling Antihero IPA. In fact, Superhero matches Antihero's hop dosing rate as it uses two contemporary hop varieties that win out for flavor and refreshment. Not only does Super Zero contain no alcohol, but there are also no calories, carbohydrates, or sugars. It's available in six packs at stores and on RevBrew.com. So how did you originally get connected to the Ramones? Through Tony Bon Jovi. I was friendly with a drummer uh, who I did work at Tony Camello's. His name was Alan Schwartzberg. He was friends with Geraldo Rivera. Alan Schwartzberg calls me up and he says, hey, we got this telethon going on. Geraldo was at ABC Television in New York at the time. And there was a um, a handicapped, um, mentally disabled, um, learning disabled, uh, kids with learning disabilities. There was a place called Willowbrook where there were rumors about it being just a torture chamber for the kids. And Geraldo busted in there with a camera crew and like blew it wide open. I mean, the kids were, you know, sleeping in their feces and urine and on the floor. And there there was like, you know, one person for 20 kids. It was a huge facility called Willowbrook. I think it was on Long Island. And Geraldo got into this benefit thing. They put together a a telethon uh, with a lot of different artists I don't remember who the artist was. This is we're talking 1975, and um, uh, Alan Schwarzberg called me. He says, "Hey, we're doing this uh, telethon. I have the house band. I think Will Lee played bass. Um, who else was in? Bobby Bobby Mann and Jerry um, Friedman play guitars." And he asked me to come down and be the audio consultant because at that time there were you know, union people who would do the mix and apparently they sucked. So I came in and just, I couldn't touch anything, but I stood behind there, the mixer, audio mixer guy. And he was probably 20 years younger than I am now. And he was like, real grumpy, you know, grumpy dude. And uh, so, and, but I ran it. I hadn't seen Tony Bon Jovi since he left Camelo's back in like 73, whenever that was. Yeah, definitely 73. And, um, Hey, Eddie, what are you doing? Me, I'm, I'm leaving Media Sound. He was, Tony's on staff at Media Sound. The manager of Media Sound was Bob Walters. And uh, Tony says, hey, Eddie, uh, me and Bob Walters, we're, we're going to start a new studio. I'm going to leave Media Sound. And hey, what are you doing? You want to be chief engineer? I'm there. And I kind of had it up in the Great White North at that time. And I said, sure. And they, they paid my way to uh, move back from Canada with my pregnant girlfriend at the time, my daughter's mom, and uh, moved back. And uh, it was the beginning, beginnings of Power Station. That, that The studio turned out to be the world-famous Power Station. Right. Um, which is still in existence. Berkeley bought it, uh, the school, you know, music school, and revamped the whole thing. And apparently it's amazing now, again. Um so I was on staff, but we hadn't, we didn't have a building. We didn't have anything. And he, he says, well, in the interim, you know, while we're going to build a studio, I am going to be doing a Ramones record. Just get this band, the Ramones. You should go see them, go to CBGB's and see them, CBGB. And uh, I couldn't get down there. Um, my daughter was born during that time. I actually couldn't make it to the first um, Ramon session at Sundragon, but that was the first project I work on. So it was Tony Bon Jovi who got me onto that project. He said, yeah, you're co-producer with me. Of course, I wasn't, I didn't get any credit as co-producer. Um, it's okay. But I, that's when I met the guys, met Tommy. Actually, Bob Clearmountain engineered the first, set up the first day because something had happened with my daughter. I was, oh, I think I, think I was up in Canada on another project and I had to, I had to stay an extra day. And uh, that's when I met the guys. And that's how I got uh, in with the family, with the brothers. What was your impression of them? I didn't even think I heard about them. I was in Canada, right? So I didn't know about the scene that was going on with Maxis and um, CBGB. And so the first time I heard them was on a playback of what uh, Bobby had done the day before. I'm like, whoa, what the fuck is this? Oh, my God. (laughs) 
but I instantly related to it because I'm not, I'm a player, but I'm a very basic kind of player. Um, I'm not a soloist. I'm not a proficient enough to do anything like that, but I'm a good rhythm player. And, uh, and then once I heard the lyrics and, you know, paid attention to that and being very impressed with Joey's uh, singing abilities, I'm like, wow, this is, at first it was like, wow. And it was really loud. Uh, somebody had turned the monitor up like super loud. So my hair went back like in the Max L commercial, my right. hair I had back then. And, um, and then I just got into it and I did really was on a level with the guys. Like it was a hometown bunch of guys that had a, a band, which I could relate to because that's, that's what I did before I got into the studio. You know, I played in all through high school and after high school in, in, in cover bands. And these guys were so original. You know, I never heard anything like that before. What do we hear like that? Who, who heard of anything like the Ramones when you first listened to that record? It's, um, it was, uh, awe inspiring. Did you think it was sort of a revolutionary album? Um, no, no, leave home. Nah, there the first album had been out. I didn't even hear the first record. I didn't hear anything. Yeah, heard Blitz Hopper. No, no, I was in Canada. You know, I was listening to Shome FM playing Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles and Peter Frampton. You know, that's and Pink Floyd. You know, that's, that's what was uh, the station that uh, the FM station that I did listen to in my leisure time. Shome, Shome FM. How were they to work with in the studio? It was fantastic. They were great. So quick. They got along. Everything was good. Oh yeah. They always got along. Even when they didn't get along, they got along in the studio. I mean, there was never any problems in the studio ever on any of the records I worked on. There was nothing, no problems, even on the, on the Spectre record, you know, there was issues with Phil, but, and Johnny. And Tommy was, was, you know, producing then and you guys were working together and that was, yeah. Yeah. Tommy's the architect. Interesting. And we did it really quick. I mean, they just were in and out, man, especially with Leave Home. You'd just be like, one, two, three, go. Yeah, one, two, three, go, knock it out. It's funny. We, we didn't, this reminds me of uh, recording Sheena, which we did after, in between, as we recorded that as a single in between Leave Home and Rocket to Russia. And we were recording and, and Didi started counting. If you, if you listen to Sheena, there's like a, whoa, four, that's... You know, he started counting and I pressed the play and record button. That, <laughs> it, it caught that four, the last four, before they started playing on that take. So that's why I kept it on there. We kept it on there. Nice. It's not one, two, three, four, just four. What do you think of Spectre's approach to them? He didn't do anything. He tortured them. He made them play over and over and over. I mean, like I said, you know, we did, we did, we did the tracking for... Most of the records, well, you know, we spent a little more time on uh, Road to Ruin, but you know, we would have the tracks done in th two or three days. Um, Leave Home was probably two days, and then Johnny double-tracked his guitar, and he probably double-tracked all of those songs on Leave Home in the time it took a subway to get from Queens to Manhattan very quickly. You know, just like, next song, next song, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. So when you came back to produce Too Tough to Die in 84, after they've been working with Spectre and Graham Goldman and I, I think Richie Cordell, yeah. was it like, I was like, oh, great to have you back. You know, was it yeah, were things it different was, at that point? Absolutely. And that was a big comeback record for them. Everybody loved Too Tough to Die. You know, it was right in the Ramones vein. You know, we had the original team back together. Although... Richie, we had a different drummer. Did you work on the end of the century sessions? Oh, yeah. I was there the entire time for every minute of the recording. Yeah. So I you engineered there. that with him? No, no, no. I did not engineer. I was in the band. I played on the backing tracks and was, I got, um, they credited as musical director on that record. Huh. And I was out there. Johnny would not go to work with Spectre unless I went. Johnny trusted me. I'd done four albums with them at that point. Whose decision was it to have them work with Spectre? Oh, Seymour Stein. Apparently when Spectre met the guys at the Whiskey way back when, when they were touring on the first record, he said, I want to produce you guys and never got around to it. But then, you know, they were buddies. Seymour and Phil went way back. And, uh, you know, and then I got a call from in 1979, I guess it was like April or May. Seymour called me and says, Ed, 
uh, Johnny's going to call you in about a half hour. Johnny didn't have a phone at home. He would go, he had one of these little devices with a, a trunk line buzzer. It's, I think it was called trunk line. You press a button and make a tone and you get free, free calls anywhere in the world. And Johnny would go to pay phones to make his calls and get his calls at the payphone. You had to call him and then he'd call you back and uh, it was crazy. So Seymour said, uh, you know, Johnny, Johnny's gonna call you. Phil Spector's gonna produce the next Ramones album, but Johnny won't go unless you go with, unless you're attending the sessions. He wanted me to go with them. And um, I ended up going, I brought my guitar. I ended up, you know, playing in rehearsals with them learn the songs and Johnny felt confident about it because I was at that time I was playing all over the Ramones records you know I started with Leave Home played on you know Leave Home played on um on Rocket to Russia Road to Ruin I'm all over the place on that thing and Johnny liked what I did we were like buddies you know we were like I was kind of in the band I was the Eddie Ramone huh. and at the time of um end of the century um Johnny had full confidence and we were, and we were pals we were good friends and uh, you know i played in the studio with the guys during the tracking of... were you doing like rhythm guitar on these songs yeah or... yeah yeah I do my kind of thing yeah yeah on every song did you work as sort of a buffer between them and specter as well or absolutely just... absolutely absolutely so how yeah. did that ha how did that work it um well phil loved me phil would take me out to dinner every night or night sessions yeah, every night go to hamburger hamlet on sunset and you know and then you know he but phil was uh he was a little out of it you know he was a little he was drinking and i got along with phil johnny didn't get along with phil you know because he kept repeating and playing things over and over again at top volume you know like at a hundred jet engine 130 db kind of volume so you kept doing takes of songs that were fine and you didn't need more takes of? No, no. He would just do over and over and over again. And then he would listen to that take over and over again. But I guess he was listening for something. And, you know, when I was doing the mixing of the record, the remixing, I didn't mix the original, doing the new mix, the reimagined mix, as Rick and I call it. Um, you know, those the takes are incredibly tight and great, you know, and maybe the, Phil knew what he was listening for but he would get mad at the engineer larry levine was the engineer on the project he was phil's a longtime engineer he did all the hits he also did like herb alpert and um all sorts of uh but and it was all old school i mean the drums are on like four tracks you know it's and this was you know i just finished road to ruin a year before and you know i have like you know 10 tracks of drums, whatever, you know, everything was separate. Larry was old school, a couple of overheads, kick drum and a snare. That was it. That was, uh, that was his thing, you know, and it sounded, sounded good. I augmented it a little bit, but you know, uh, uh, Phil, you know, especially the infamous intro chord to rock and roll high school that Johnny has always said took eight hours or 10 hours to do. It was probably an hour and a half, but he would make us play that first chord, getting feedback over and over and over again. And Johnny was just like hating it. He would look at me and say, what the, you mouth, what the fuck, what the fuck's going on? You see Phil in the control room, like punching Larry and doing, you know, hey, Larry, can you, I, I don't know what they were doing in there. Were there guns? I never saw a gun. I was involved in one of the uh, prisoner at his house incidents. He wouldn't let us leave. He took Monty's keys and wouldn't let us leave. Yeah. What do you mean he wouldn't let you leave? He wouldn't let us leave the house. He just kept playing old records and playing the jukebox and playing, wanted us to play pool and we were all starving. There was no food. <laughs> You're just at Phil Spector's house now and he's just keeping you prisoner. Yeah, yeah. Basically, he kept us hostage there oh. for hours and hours. It's well documented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Earlier than that, you met Talking Heads and you were on Talking Heads 77. Yeah, that's another Bon Jovi thing. That was while, while we're, you know, while we're building Power Station. Yeah. So yeah. how are they? What were they like? Well, they're great. I love them. I'm still friends with them. I still talk to them. Well, I did the Atmos mixes um, for 77 and, uh, and uh, more songs about buildings and food and hung out. Jerry was with me. Um, and I always talked to... Uh, Chris, you know, we're, we're, we're pals. I still talk to the guys. I see them once in a while too. Yeah. I talked to Chris for, for Carol pop and I've always, I've wanted to get the others as well. So at some point uh -huh. I got to yeah. follow up, but, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by their, their new harmony among the four of them. After. Yeah. Right. It's great to see them. It's great to see them all together and smiling. Unbelievable. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's not where they, that's not where they were when I talked to Chris. So it's, no, no, so I things know have happened. No, they uh, they ironed some stuff out apparently. So in the in the studio, did they would they just kind of knock the stuff out like the Ramones? Were they? Yeah, they, yeah, and, and another you know, uh, Chris is a great drummer. His time is impeccable. He was just great. They have they were well rehearsed. You know, um, knocked the stuff out, man. We knocked it out, and, and the stuff sounds great. You know, I did the Atmos mixes of the whole whole seventy seven record. It was a lot of fun to revisit it forty five years later. Did it last year. You know, it's it's up on all the streaming sites. The Dolby Atmos stream. Right. And Apple Music and Amazon and Title. You didn't work on the Eno ones, right? No, I did work with Eno on on more more songs about buildings and food. I mixed, found a job, and then I started with Brian. Um, I started with some ambient music with with Brian. Um, after I did found a job, we were at Media Sound and we did a, we did a bunch of tracks. I remember we were several days, maybe five days. We did that, and then he found. A, he couldn't, didn't want to pay media sound prices at that time. It was like, you know, 125 an hour or something like that. And he found Daniel Lanois and went up to uh, Canada and worked with Daniel. And that's where that, that connection started. Huh. But, um, you know, worked a little bit on the early ambience stuff, probably music for airports. I don't remember. Um, I do have all those records, but none of it sounds familiar to me. So it was in, a, in an experimental stage at that point very early on yeah all right and then we have the smithereens they were yeah, baby. new jersey yeah. band they had their first two albums produced by My don buddy. dixon yeah and then yes. they then they're like here ed stasium is going to produce 11 not that you maybe knew the title at that point we, but. we did not know the title yet uh, mark freed who was working at bmi and was their publisher at the time put us together we went to mama leone's in new york to have dinner and, and actually we we met before they did green thoughts with uh, with Don at the Capitol Tower, and um, they, we got on, but they were already um, poised to work with Don on that record, which is a great record. There's some great stuff on that record. Behind the Wall of Sleep, and you know, only a only a memory. There's some great stuff on there. Right. Yeah. Behind the Wall of Sleep's on, uh, especially for you. Yeah, I mean, and, only a, and then only memories on Green Thoughts. And yeah. No, they're both they're both really good. Yeah, and eleven's really good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we went a little. I guess it took it a little further somehow. Did you have? Did you have sort of marching orders for that one? Like, look, we need you to toughen up the sound, or we need you to expand no, the sound, or no? I, I've never gotten anything like that from anybody, from any A and R guy. But we rehearsed in New York, got the songs, and Pat's a you know proficient songwriter. Just comes up with all these great songs, and he had written. Uh, a girl like you for for Cam and Crow. Cam and Crow was um, was doing a film called Say Anything, right? And um, he wrote the song and gave Cameron the demo, and then Cameron thought that it um, it was kind of a throwaway, and Cameron thought that it gave too, away too much of the plot. I read that that he thought it was like a spoiler. Yeah, it's a spoiler. So he said, "Nah, that's okay." But uh, you know what? The uh, living cult of, cult of personality was in that film. From what I understand, huh. I don't think we saw the film. Anyway, yeah, so we it's a good movie. Yeah, yeah. So we kept a girl. It's not like full you. of like plot twists, though. It's not like, oh my god, I didn't expect that to happen. If you if, <laughs> if, you, if you'd heard "Good Girl Like You," it would have been totally ruined. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. What a great tune, uh, "Girl Like You," Madonna. You know, the Smithereens at that time were um, managed by Freddie Demand. All right. Madonna's manager. Mm -hmm. And Madonna was slated to sing on A Girl Like You. We, were, we, we cut the tracks at American Recorders in um, Calabasas, Richie Polidor's place. Richie did all those early Steppenwolf records and Three Dog Night and actually played guitar and co-wrote Let There Be Drums by Sandy Nelson. Cut the tracks there. We did all overdubs at Rumbo, Captain and Tennille's studio in the Valley. And so we're all excited. Madonna was coming down. We had a date all set. We had a microphone set up. We we hid cameras and shit. We had a video camera on and we didn't want her to know we were videotaping. So we had it all and we were recording audio and she didn't show up. Okay. The next time she doesn't show up. So she, she had, she talked to Pat, you know, she, Pat was talking to her on the, on the telephone. She just didn't show up. Nope. Twice. And we got uh, Marie Vidal saying the backing vocal and the, the female backing vocal. Um, 
Marie Vidal was in a hit pop group called Desmond Child and Rouge with, you know, the famous Desmond Child songwriter who wrote a gazillion great songs for the likes of, you know, Bon Jovi, etc. Um, but she was in Des she was she was one of the Rouge girls. She it sounds good, but the band must have been kind of bummed out that Madonna no show. Yeah, we were all we were all bummed out. We all had it all set up too, we were ready to go. You know? Come on, Madonna. Yeah, we were, come on. Where are you, Madonna? So she didn't show up. But that, that was a blast uh, working on Smithereens Eleven. Got to know the guys really well. They're from my, my, they're from Jersey. And Dennis wrote like a bio of you, like a, he did for the uh, Encyclopedia of uh, uh, Music Producers. Yeah, record producers. So I talked to him and he he said the one thing that he wasn't so thrilled with with that album was that you you had him play with a click track and I don't think Yeah, yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> it was the thing at the time. I still use clicks. People love it. You know? Well you you use that is that the the click that you use the little thing you no, played no, earlier? No, 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 no. That's not a click. You don't just like hold that in like the drummer's ear while he plays or something? No. You know, Tommy Ramone played with a metronome. A visual metronome. It was like a little metronome, and it blinked, and he would have that on his kick drum, and he would watch that and keep in time with that. So was that like a conflict at the time where you're like, "Hey, Dennis, play with the, the click track," and he's like, "Hey, man. no, you know, he was cool with it." Um, uh, when when it got to uh, blow up, he was a little more, a little more adamant about not wanting to be uh, used the click track. Yeah, but I've always known that about Dennis. Yeah, um, but was that hey, just it worked. It sounded great, and it, I think it made him a better drummer. Honestly, you know, was, I'm trying to remember who it was. There was one drummer I talked to who actually said that he did become a better drummer having to use a click track. And so, I work with Clem Burke on stuff. He fucking loves a click track. Says Ed, "Where's the click?" And I've made a, and all my clicks have been organic. They're not like beep 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 beep. Um, for the Smithereens, I had this Casio drum machine with. Uh, with samples in it. It was early. It's like, you know, we're talking, you know, when was that? 88, 89, we did that record. And it had a little, like a cowbell and some shakers. I would make a, like, like a loop to, to play with, not just a beep, 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 beep. There was no, no beeps on my click tracks. And I do the same thing now. And in, in Pro Tools, I'll have like a, a tambourine, a couple shakers, a cowbell, a side stick, you know, to play with and get the balance right so the drummer's comfortable with it. Um, on the Long Riders record, I did, you know, total click. Kenny Aronoff comes in. He, all those cats play with clicks. Dennis did good with the click. One of the things with click tracks is that it enables you to kind of use parts of different takes did you did you tend to kind of assemble those tracks you know the for performances from different takes or are we oh, always always yeah i didn't do it with like early on when ramones are talking heads but uh, you know with living color and smithereens something happens so i would always edit stuff together always out of takes and, and with the click track you know i mean i i would i have edited stuff without click tracks but the click track makes it you know especially uh being in Pro Tools, if you work in the grid, you, know, you can move stuff around and take the best out of different takes. I love doing that. It's my, it was my, it's my favorite thing to do. Um, you know, um, tons of edits, like on Living Colors, Smithereens, all that stuff. Um, on, you know, different takes, pull it in, get a, get, and mostly getting the drums right, you know? Yeah, that album, Vivid uh, Living Color, that's around the same time, right? Didn't they both come out in 1990? I think I saw 1993 of Stasium's productions dwelled in the Billboard Top 100 album charts simultaneously. Vivid by Living Color, Hell to Pay by the Jeff Healy Band, and Smithereens 11. Oh, yeah. Um, is that from Dennis's bio? I think it is, is that, yeah. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah, and I didn't even get nominated for Producer of the Year. What the fuck? <laughs> you know anyway i'll give it to you retroactively yeah okay i appreciate that you're welcome yeah so i've always edited um tony bon jovi taught me how to edit multi uh, two inch tape and uh, I, I really loved doing it um so in december of 1989 i was contacted by virgin records to do several tracks with a band called the Muscle Shoal, named after the famous studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And uh, they were cool. They kind of sounded like Squeeze. I actually flew over to London. In, in, it was in England. I flew to London for one day to meet with them. And they loved the Living Color record. And um, flew for one day, came back, and then um, we set up like, uh, like a two-week period. 
uh, I grabbed my en engineer and assistant, Paul Hammingson, who I started working with on the translator records, uh, mid eighties. And then he was with me for a good 10 years, maybe longer on all the smithereens, living color, something happens, all those groups, junkyard. So we fly over to London, rehearse with this band called the Muscle Show. And we had to, because of the time schedule, um, my manager wife at the time, Francine Mallette, um, booked two different studios. We booked Rockfield in Wales uh, to, to um, track, do the backing tracks. And then she booked another place called Comforts, another studio called Comforts Place, both being residential studios where you, they cook you meals and you, you know, you have your bedroom and really nice places. So we go to Rockfield, we set up, we get the first day, did great. I mean, we set up the stuff, we got like, we got one song done and the owner of the of Rockfield, Kingsley, Kingsley Ward, well, good old chap said, come on, mates, we're going to go. I'll take you all out to dinner in Monmouth. Monmouth was the closest town to Rockfield. So we go out, have dinner. The drummer gets shit-faced. Shit-faced, fall in the gutter, drunk. I mean, he literally walked, we walked out of the restaurant and he fell into the street. He fell, fell over the curb. We were only there for three days. We had a setup day. Then the first day recording, we got one track done. Third day, ready to go. Um, and of course, that, like as most studios do, you have like two great Studer A20 machines that you can edit on and listen to different takes back and forth. Pull one take from one reel, put it in there, blah, blah, blah. So old Kingsley got the drummer drunk, fucked up really bad. He couldn't play the next day. It was our last day at Rockfield. He couldn't play. He, he was like so hungover. And we're playing with a click track, mind you. Thank you goodness. Go. Yeah, I got the old click track going. So I just did multiple takes of two songs. And I said, well, I'll edit them once we get to Comfort's Place. I'll edit them there. Okay, so at this point, I had been editing tape so much, I had my own personal splicing block. Uh, I, I got that idea from Roy Thomas Baker when I worked with him at the studio more in Heights, he had a little case and he opened it up and there was a splicing block in his case and he had his own personal splicing block. So I had to buy one too. I still have it. It's in a case in my, in my office. Okay. I leave my fucking splicing block at Rockfield. It's oh. hours away. There's no FedEx. There's, there's nothing. It had to come by rail. So I spent, and, and we get to the studio and there's one machine and it's a 3M, which is the worst machine you can possibly edit on. It has like a loop on it. Not like the Studers or MCIs or any of the other Scullies. They're flat. This has this loop on it and it's like so hard to edit. It's impossible. It's not impossible. And there's also, they had a splicing block, which was my the doom splicing block it was like flat and it had these three little like clamps that you would put down on the tape it was hateful it was terrible didn't have my splicing block we had to get it we got it by rail somehow but it came late it didn't even come while i was editing this stuff so i had to spend an entire day editing two songs together and the takes were so bad that i literally had to take drum fills from one of these songs and put it into the other song that fortunately they were at the same BPM. Anyway, so we continued, we were there for maybe, we were there for a while because we were doing all the overdubs there. So we we're probably there for a week or so. So um, we were supposed to leave on a December 22nd and we really, we were packed, my engineer and myself, we we're trying to finish. We we're trying to finish up recording, doing overdubs, still working making rough mixes. We had a car waiting for us. We were packed and ready to go to Heathrow. Uh, the flight left at 10 p.m. At 8 p.m. We're all packed, ready to go. Well, not going to make it. Not going to make it. Car still waiting for us. Nope, ain't going to make it. It's it's nine o'clock. We're not going to. We can't go. We're going to have to leave tomorrow. So anyway, we kept working. It turned out it was about 1 a.m. midnight or so. And I get a call from my then manager wife Francine because I told her we we're going to try to we we're going to try to get on his flight tonight and she said my our friend David Renson a great friend of mine he's a writer called her and said you know wasn't Ed supposed to come back tonight because that plane crashed and I'm like and she's like what she 
got through at the studio and she and they had a satellite television there with sky tv i think it was or something and she said and so one of the guy told the guys what was happening the plane crashed and they said turn on the satellite and it was a, it was a lockerbie flight wow we were, we were booked on we we're supposed to leave on and um so that drunk drummer saved my life and paul was pissed because it was his daughter's first birthday it was the next day like the 23rd of december he was he was like pacing come on and we got to get out of here i got to make the party because they were having a big celebration for their first birthday we didn't make it thank god we didn't make it because uh, we didn't get on that plane that crashed did that change your outlook on life i mean that would seem to be one of those like holy it was shit it moments. was startling it was startling yeah yeah sure did i'm like holy shit that somebody somebody's keeping an eye out for me i guess i wasn't meant to go i'm still not i'm still here you know through all these you know medical issues i have and whatever i'm still here still freaking working like i said you know i have seven projects going on right now this old man does it's insane it's great i love it i don't know how to do anything else like i'm not going to retire i can't play golf i don't want to play golf i don't play golf still playing guitar <laughs> i do yeah yeah matter of fact um i just got a um my my, my friend andy babuke um uh, just as a gift gave me a, a, a jimmy page Ooh. um jimmy page telly um designed to the specifications of his original telecaster it says jimmy page on the back here and on the rosewood neck yeah i've been playing this i played a little uh rickenbacker 12 string on uh, the track that i'm working on here that's a nice friend who gives you something like that oh yeah right yeah i was wow. working on a project with him and we worked a lot of overtime and he says, Ed, and I was interested in the guitar. And I said, I want to buy that, Andy. And he called me and says, Ed, we have a problem. I said, what is it? He says, I'm not going to let you pay for that guitar. Thank you. Really, really sweet. And it's, a, you know, it, it, they measured, they got Paige's original guitar and did all the specifications, pickups, everything. It's identical to you know, the guitar used on the, free, the first uh, three zeppelin records when the, the design the dragon is was you know on his guitar as well just to go back for some of the reasons i'll let you go um yeah. blow up different kind of experience yeah you know we had a had a bit of a hit with 11 so we kind of went over budget on, on you know hey i thought hey if bob rock can do it i can do it you know just to spend a good long time on a record and get it really right and that record's good there's a lot of great stuff on on blow up i figured if the eagles could do it if we went back and do it and if bob rock can spend two years on a metallica record hell i can spend two months on a smithereens record and make it a big hit wasn't quite the big hit that we thought it was going to be did the band like that process or was it, did it get a little dicey? Got a little tedious. Yeah. I think it got a little tedious for the band. Yeah. Yeah. The narrative around that record is it came out just as, you know, it'll sort of grunge. in the wake of nevermind and grunge yes, and, that, exactly, and that, exactly. that, that was sort of its moment wasn't there for whatever reason. Do you think yeah. that's right? Yeah, I do think it's right. Yeah. It was uh, become, it was the grunge time and we were still doing, you know, rock pop rock, you know, power pop, power pop. Yeah. So, and you know, 11 did well. Yeah. Well, I was saying to Dennis Dyken, how I, I think all that stuff just holds up sonically, you know, it, it, I mean, the songs, the songs hold up and the sounds hold up like a lot of stuff from that era. I mean, you're talking about mid late eighties yeah. and then early nineties. There's a lot of kind of timestamps on a lot of records that you don't sure. hear on those records. Yeah, no, I love the Smithereens records. I love the stuff that Don did. I really love the stuff that I did as well. Any last sort of philosophical points you would make about how you approach recording bands? Trust your instinct. That's my catchphrase. Trust your instinct. And is it your instinct or the band's instinct or something? Kind of well, every, everybody's instinct. Yeah. I trust my instinct. And what is your instinct? I can't really explain it. It's not, it's not explainable. It's just, it's what I like. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, as in turning the knobs till it sounds what I think sounds good, it's giving suggestions to a band for their arrangement or a performance that I think will better the record. And I, it's really not easy to explain. I'm, I'm not a technical guy. I'm not a schooled musician. I'm not a schooled mathematician. Um, I'm not, um, I don't know anything about what's in the box. I just, Literally, how many times will I say, I just turn the knobs till I think it sounds good. 
and it seems to work. And I trust your instinct, you know, whatever you think. And, you know, for, for people that are, I mean, it's a whole different thing now, but with recording and music and the record business, quote unquote, uh, but just, you know, try to make what you're doing sound like what you like, you know? I mean, I, you know, I try to make my records. I listen to Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and the Stones and, uh, you know, based my knowledge of recording on listening to those records. And wow, can, that sounds great. Can I, so I, I, maybe I'm emulating that stuff. So my advice is to emulate what you like and trust your instinct. That's nice. a good, that's a nice long one. Emulate what you like and trust your instinct. That's all for episode 107 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Ed Stasium for filling in so many blanks about the replacements, the Ramones, Phil Spector, Talking Heads, the Smithereens, and more. The Let It Bleed edition of The Replacements Tim, which contains an LP of Stasium's outstanding mix, plus four CDs containing that and much more, is now available from Rhino Records. Go to edstasium.com to learn more about him and his work, including a discography of albums he's worked on that you should own. And maybe you can book him for a session. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who brings a dose of thunder to every swinging party. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter and Instagram at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit carolpop.com where you can support this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.